This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Gabriel Boric, a 35-year-old former student leader, congressman, and millennial leftist from the southern tip of Chile, has won in the second round of Chile's presidential election. He resoundly defeated the first-round winner, José Antonio Cast, the ultra-right, faux-populist admirer of Pinochet's dictatorship, whose campaign stoked fear and hatred of migrants, opposed women's rights, same-sex marriage, and promised repression. Pablo Abufom Silva joins us from Chile with his analysis of the election results. He talks about Boric's politics and the immense challenges he faces in making the changes he represents. These include ending neoliberal economic policies, taking on police brutality and human rights violations, a deepening of democracy and civil rights, urgent action on climate change, fighting for gender equity, the empowerment of women and indigenous peoples, all in the context of an economic crisis made worse by the pandemic. Pablo's article, Gabriel Boric, Ultimo Presidente de lo Viejo o Primer Presidente de lo Nuevo, that's Gabriel Boric, last president of the old or first president of the new, is published online by Viento Sur. And we spend the hour with him when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman and very pleased to have Pablo Arufom Silva back with us. We're going to spend the hour talking about the impressive victory in Chile, where the second round of their presidential election on December 19th resulted in a landslide for the young leftist former student leader Gabriel Boric of the Oprebo Dignidad, or I Approve Dignity Coalition. His fascist far-right opponent, Jose Antonio Cast, who won in the first round with a red-baiting reactionary campaign that demonized migrants as narco-trafficking terrorists, promised repression and a reversal of same-sex marriage and the gains that women have won, and that painted Boric as a tool of the Communist Party, warning that Chile would become a poor Venezuela or Nicaragua if Boric won. He won in the first round in November, but turnout increased 10% from that first round, meaning that there was a huge mobilization and Boric won by nearly 12 points, 56% to 44%. And Boric has said the time has come for a radical overhaul of Chilean society and its economy. He'll be sworn in on March 11th, and he vowed to unite Chile. We're going to talk about some of that, what it has meant, and to fight the privileges of the few, to tackle poverty and inequality. And importantly, he has echoed the demands and slogans of the October 2019 popular revolt and said that Chile was the birthplace of neoliberalism, but it's also now his administration will mark the grave for neoliberalism. His victory was decisive and his triumph makes him the youngest leader in Latin America, barely old enough to be president. And it's the victory of this new generation who are deeply opposed to the neoliberal model that was bequeathed to Chile by uh, the Pinochet dictatorship and the beneficiary of the huge protest movement that won the right to scrap the Pinochet constitution 
and elect a constituent assembly to write a new one. Well, there's a lot more to say, and I'm going to leave it to Pablo Avafom to do it. He's a translator. He is now studying a new career in biology, but he graduated in philosophy from Arsis and has a master's degree from the University of Chile. He's the editor of the strategic debate magazine Posiciones. He's a founding member of the Social Center Projection Library in Santiago and part of the editorial collective of Jacobin America Latina. And I have to say, Pablo, just first of all, welcome back to the show. But kind of to frame it, I was very impressed after the victory that you wrote to me that it was a mix of anti-fascist relief and anti-reformist suspicion. (laughs) It just seems like a great way to start. But maybe you could just begin by talking about this election, the mobilization, the amount that was won, and what it all means. Yeah. Hi, Susie. It's great (laughs) to be here again. So I would say that Sunday's election feels feels like a like a victory finally for many people who have been struggling for decades to to change chile into a a more just society who have been fighting against the neoliberal policies that were implemented by the dictatorship it feels like there's a real opportunity for change the first feeling that sense that we had of this possible victory of this possible new political space for change was with the constitutional convention, right? So the, the, the popular revolt of October 2019 opened the way for this constituent moment that th- this is how we've been perceiving this and talking about this, a constituent moment that meant basically connecting all the dots of the social demands of the past 20 decades to the need for a new constitution, uh, an institutional a translation of those changes. And so that was the first huge leap in the political consciousness of the people in Chile that we needed structural change and not just conquer some of the demands that some social sectors have. And, and also a revolt against impunity because the Piñera government declared war on its people on the, the night of beginning of the revolt in October. And so with the military on the street in those days, people felt that this government was going back to the dictatorship in a way. And then after all the mutilation and human rights violations and and political prisoners during the revolt and after that, the feeling is that there's impunity again in Chile in terms of a government that is basically sending the, the forces of oppression to kill its own people, to detain its own people. And so... It's a mix of political change in the middle of a social crisis with the idea that justice needs uh, a new government also, not just uh, structural change in in the terms of of a new constitution. And so the the victory of Boric in the election last Sunday sort of combines those things. But there's also, and I I wrote to you about anti-fascist relief right, that we feel relieved that Cast didn't win the election. Because, you know, he won the first round. Boric was second. And that meant that we were all really basically scared that we would have a Bolsonaro-like, Trump-like figure on the government. And so that fear fueled a lot of mobilization for the second round. 
but also anti-reformist suspicion because Boric has always been a moderate, always. Since his day as a student leader in 2012, he was a moderate in his own ranks and he was always the moderate in, in his own party and the Frente Amplio. We have to remember that in November 15th, when the parliament decided to sign, or the, the political forces of the establishment decided to sign an agreement for a new constitution and social peace, as it was called, Boric signed that agreement on his own, with his own name, not as a representative of his party, because huge sectors of his party were not didn't agree with going with that agreement, right? It was definitely the agreement that opened the way for a constitutional convention, but it also, and that's good, that's great, but it is also the agreement that set the ground for a constitutional convention that is highly restricted to the current constitution. So, so Boric is not really a figure that it's liked by the people from who have been part of the revolt. And so just to finish this part, the, the fact that we were all scared from caste but also scared that caste would, as you were saying, he would represent a setback in terms of acquired rights, social rights, reproductive rights, but also because he would represent sort of like a a real problem for the constitutional convention, for the constituent process. That made the social movement, the feminist movement, the environmentalist movement, the radical left, and sectors who were involved in in the popular revolt of October to basically decide, quickly decide that Boric had to win, even if we didn't agree with his platform, right? That was, there was something more important at stake. So given all of that, and I wanted, Pablo, I want to do two things. I want to first, before we get into Boric's politics, not just as personally, but the coalition as a whole and its constituent organizations, I want to talk first about the account, you know, like we've mentioned what caste represents, but it's also Chile is highly polarized in the way that much of the world is. And yet, if Boric represents, you know, someone to the left of most of the candidates we've seen around the world, caste is to the right of Bolsonaro and Trump. He, you know, comes from a real Nazi background, even if he tried to downplay that. And he promised nothing but, you know, more repression. And yet he got 45 percent of the vote here in the United States. We're pretty frightened by the fact that Trump got 70 million votes, even though that was you know less than Biden's vote. But Trump does not represent that kind of direct fascism. And so I guess the question is, who are the 45 percent who voted for caste? Is it the military, the police, the former supporters of Pinochet? Is it more than that? Can you kind of quickly tell us who they are? I think that caste voters are a, a mixed bag, especially for the second round. There were at least three candidates of, in the right of the spectrum, of the political spectrum for the fifth round. One was Sebastián Sichel, who was a representative of the traditional parties in the left. And there was also Cast, who founded his own party, the Republican Party, that's the name. And But he used to be part of that same coalition, the, right, the right-wing traditional coalition. He was a member of one of the parties founded by the followers of Pinochet during the dictatorship in the 80s. He was a, a congressman during 16 years for that party. 
So he's a, he's part of the establish, establishment. He, that's one of the differences with Trump, for instance. He's more to the right than Trump in some ways, but he's more pro-establishment or part of the establishment than Trump in other ways. But there's also, you, you could say that maybe the Tea Party thing, it's sort of like the Partido Republicano of caste. Not sure, but it's it's some. there are some similarities there. And then there was also this weird character in between that's Franco Parisi. He's a, a businessman who's actually, he did his campaign from the, the US. He was <laughs> not in Chile for the campaign. He was campaigning on Zoom, basically. And... <laughs> And he's sort of like a candidate for the anti-political vote of, of middle classes that don't care about politics, but think that all politicians are, are the want to steal their money, want to steal their, their little that they have, right? So in a very, I would say, a very patriarchal idea of politics also, like winners, you know, like the yeah. politics of bros that have don't, no politics. <laughs> and so... I would say if you take the rich in Chile and you take the military and, and all those forces, the classic Pinochetista base, it's not enough for that 45%. So caste also represents those popular sectors that in the middle of, of, in the middle of this social and economic crisis feel that what we need is an authoritarian response to the crisis, one that it's against the questioning questioning of sexual relations that the feminist movement has been doing for the past years, one that believes that migrants are a threat to their Mm -hmm. employment, one sector that that believes that the UN is a communist plot. So, yeah, as I was saying, it's it's a mixed bag of, I would say, afraid people in the popular classes and then the right-wing the traditional right wing. But for those of us viewing this from the outside, and especially who, you know, like myself, have long been involved in, you know, understanding and being part of Chilean politics, in a way, it was a real surprise to see the anti the same sort of rhetoric, including, you know, wanting to dig a trench around Chile for the immigrants to fall in, migrants to fall into and never get there. And then, you know, knowing that Chile has gotten about a million new immigrants from Haiti and Venezuela. And so there's also a degree of racism, I'm assuming, in that. And this is really, for Chile, this is perhaps not surprising, but but surprising at the same time that he was able to capitalize on that. And I'm sure that, and I'll ask you, you know, that the the pandemic has played a, a huge part in making people more frightened, but also sending the economy into a tailspin. And of course, you know, we we should mention, too, that the Chilean stock market dropped. I can't remember. You'll tell me 30 points or something on the news that Cast was defeated and Boric won. So, OK, so that's the sort of far right. But one of the things that is that in this election, turnout, you know, was better in the second round. It was like 55, 56 percent which by Chilean standards is low. And I think we need to say this, that, you know, Chile up until Pinochet, 
had a very strong political culture. People, you know, instead of joining Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, would join the youth group of the political party of their parents. And there was institutional political ties from a young age, and everybody was very political, plus mandatory voting. And so very high turnout. And in 2012, that was gotten rid of. But the fact that Pinochet ruled for so long, an entire generation grew up in Chile without ever having, you know, an election to participate in or to get excited about. And it seems crazy, but that sort of civic commitment to voting disappeared or or am I am I wrong about that? And so the question then becomes, people are saying, well, 56 percent is good. How do you see that turnout and what does it mean? Because you've also mentioned that Parisi appealed to those who really are anti-political. Is that a huge or a big part of the political spectrum in Chile, this sort of apolitical, don't want to vote sector? Well, it's 55, 57% turnout is a good, it's a good turnout if you compare that with the past 30 years, since the 90s abstention has been growing and turnout has been going down with the exception of the referendum last year for a new constitution. And then it also happened in the first round of this election, right? So the fact that this second round had almost a million more votes, yeah. it's, uh, it's very relevant. And also a million, a million two hundred thousand new votes for Boric. That, that made the difference. That's also very interesting. We can talk about that uh, in a while. But I think you're you're right that there's a there's a weird connection between the the fact that we didn't have a massive uh, political life in Chile during the dictatorship, and then you see, I would say, in my experience, you see two two types of people: people who don't care about politics and voting in that sense. For them, I have, I mean, tomorrow I have to work anyway, so it doesn't matter who who's in government, right? And that people tend to vote whenever there's something at stake. And I think what happened in this election is that there was something at stake for everyone, whether it's the, the threat of communism, as they were saying, or the threat of a setback in social rights and, and blocking the, the constitutional convention. So, but then there's also the people who, who always want to vote and who are, continually reminding us younger generations that they didn't have the right to vote during the dictatorship and that we have to respect that and we have to celebrate that because it was uh, very hard to regain that right. So yeah, there's those types of people in Chile. I think that, as I was saying, everybody had something at stake for this election, especially for the second round. And that and that means that that turnout is it's a, it's good news. It's good news. I want to go, you know, now deeper into, you know, the actual politics. I'd like you to do this, to talk about, you know, how important the social protest movement of October 19, of 2019 was. It was part of a global anti-austerity, anti-neoliberal protest that was coming on the heels of increasing inequality everywhere. And that mobilization, which was so impressive, literally from Lebanon to Chile and and around, but especially in Chile, yielded a result that was unexpected and that you and I have talked about here on the show, which was that the protesters won the right to scrap the Constitution and to elect constituents for a constituent assembly 
you know, super revolutionary thing to do to write a new constitution. And I think you wrote that they succeeded in in doing what 30 years of the Concertacion and the post-Pinochet governments had failed to do, which was to scrap that constitution that enshrined neoliberal rule within Chile. And Boric, of course, ran on that and was the beneficiary of that. And his campaign was in favor of measures to stop climate change, to deprivatize, I guess that's the word, the pension system, to increase national health care, uh, more rights, as you said, for women and, and indigenous peoples, uh, LGBTQ community. And I think that you could also say that, you know, that impressive mass protest showed the Chile that most of us knew from before, and that is a very democratic mass participatory movement, the, of course, Unidad Popular or Popular Unity was very far to the left and was devastated over this long period of the dictatorship and then the Concertacion. And it seemed that in the first period past the Pinochet politics, that the old left became very self-limiting, that, you know, they decided themselves that maybe out of fear of what had just happened, that they had to moderate. And you even get somebody, let's say, well, like Michelle Bachelet, who had been part of the left, who had been herself, been tortured and in prison, and then just leading, you know, a regime that was social democratic in a very mild way and part of the neoliberal Rule, But then everything, you know, broke open with 2019 and this mass protest. I'm sure that you would say it happened way before that and Boric was part of it in terms of the student movement. But what you saw was a continual mobilization and a revival in a way of the kind of um, really impressive politics. And what you saw out of that mass movement was that the in the streets, the people transformed themselves, that this was a, you know, a breakthrough and yielded great results. And of course, you've already said that the right was strong, but I'd like you to talk about how you see the nature of that mass movement in bringing forth this new politics. Yeah, it's um, it's very interesting, the fact that there was a, an accumulation of this mobilizing drive in Chile since the early 2000s, right? And the student movement was very important in that in 2001, and then and definitely in 2006 with the high school students mobilizing. And that maybe was the beginning of this new political moment uh, of change, of questioning neoliberal establishment. And then you have the, the labor movement that had very important struggles 2007 and eight, of course, the Mapuche people had been mobilizing since the early 90s with very important struggles for autonomy and self-determination in the South. But then in, in 2011, it, there seemed to, that was the first huge breakthrough, right? The idea that neoliberalism was not, that this status quo was not unbreakable, uh, that there was, there was a space for change. And also, it meant that new political forces were being born. And one of them is Frente Amplio, the the coalition of the new left that Boric and his party are part of. The other party is uh, Revolución Democrática, Democratic Revolution. It's a more liberal party within Frente Amplio. 
And could and, you just tell our listeners within that, what is Boric's political party? Uh, his party right now is Convergencia Social, Social Convergence. Yeah. And that party is also the end of a long process of building a party with several smaller groups before that. And so that generation of that student movement of 2011 is today the face of this new government. Camila Vallejo, who was a student leader in 2011 from the Communist Party, she's definitely going to be in Boric's cabinet. Giorgio Jackson, who, who was also a leader in other university in the same year, is also, he was one of the, the leaders of the Boric's campaign. And then Boric, of course, was a president for the Student Federation of Universidad de Chile. And so it seems that it feels like closure in this cycle that was open in 2011. The question is, I think, whether Boric is going to be the last president of the old order of the, or the first president of the new one. Brilliant. Uh, yeah. I, think, I want to just go, yeah. jump in on that, too, because that's really sort of where I want to go, because there's, you know, there's this pre-dictatorship politics in Chile that was very far to the left, and the popular unity was a coalition of, of more traditional political parties that then moved to the right. And now we have in the period now that you're seeing that came out of these mass protests, we have this new movement. You, you've begun, you started to analyze it and, and describe it. But I think the other thing that, you know, that I want you to pay attention to in, in your remarks is how much confidence was gained through the successes that let's say even from the student movement to the mass protest of 2019 and how much that increased the sort of, I guess, radicalness of the demands that they could go forward. And then in the elections that literally wiped out the Concertacion and the center right since they got the constituent assembly, that it's been one big surprise and called to attention a, a deeper analysis of the politics of this Frente Amplio and Aprevo Dignidad. And I, I do want to go into that because just to say as well that one of the very impressive things about Boric is he doesn't represent the traditional, let's say, Communist Party line on Venezuela or Nicaragua. He's anti-authoritarian. He's anti-top-down. I've read somewhere that he's grounded in Gramscian politics. Perhaps that's true. Perhaps that's not. But he does represent this new millennial, very democratic, mass participatory politics. Is that the case? I think it's a it's a very good question. Well, he's definitely part of a generation that broke with traditional leftist parties, the, the old socialist party that became a neoliberal party in a way, and the old communist party that it's it's been changing in the past years. Camila Vallejo is part of that renovation and other representatives in parliament and in the constitutional convention and, and, and social leaders, union leaders. So that break with that politics, it, it's not necessarily a shift or a turn toward more more radical politics than the Communist Party. One can say with confidence that the Frente Amplio platform is not so different from the Communist Party platform since the, the 90s, that it's basically building a social democratic state, redistribution of wealth, re-nationalizing some of the res of natural resources, and building international regional cooperation with other countries. And they have been updating their program with the feminist movement and the inclusion of 
uh, migrant perspectives, anti-colonial per perspectives. But, but I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that Boric or his party are anti-authoritarian just because they oppose Maduro's regime or because they feel that Nicaragua is not a democracy or that they don't really like Cuba's politics and they prefer to look towards, uh, I don't know, Sweden or Denmark or South Korea for economic models. So it's, it's a left coalition, but it's a progressive left coalition, not a radical left coalition. And as I was saying, Boric was always a moderate figure in his ranks. And so we need to take that into account, too. This is really important, Pablo Abufon, because what you're really expressing, too, is what you said to me, you know, your anti-reformist suspicions. And of course, the political space that's open right now is for reform. But in Chile, it's a more radical reform than what we're seeing elsewhere. You could say that this is the Bernie politics to the left in some ways, and it incorporates climate change. It's significant, I think. Maybe I'll ask you that Boric comes from Magallanes, from Punta Arenas, from the other side of Chile that, you know, not part of the uh, normal political groupings or uh, people that come from Santiago Concepcion all around, you know, in the populist center. And maybe, I don't know, do you see it as akin to, let's say, Castillo in, in uh, Peru coming from outside? Is there any similarity to something like that? But but more importantly, I guess, is, you know, to concentrate on the politics. And, I, and we know that in the first round, or rather last year, in order to become the candidate, Borg defeated Jadwe, the communist mayor from Recoleta, right? And people saw Jadwe, I think, is to the left of Boric. He's a member of the Communist Party. And if we know the longer history of the Communist Party in Chile, it's always very radical in opposition. But the closer it gets to power, the more moderate it becomes. And I really want you to address that, you know, in seeing who Boric is, and where you've mentioned Camila Vallejo, she's like an international star, literally, you know, that yeah. came out. Of, but is this a, a question of that traditional mold of the Communist Party being extremely radical in opposition? How do you see it now? Well, for me, coming from a, a radical left perspective, the Communist Party in Chile has always been highly disciplined with representative democracy. Uh, mm -hmm. even during the popular unity um, process. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It works sometimes, it doesn't work other times. Uh, but as you say, they, when, whenever they come closer to power, they became moderate. But in a way, it's because their, their own perspective, their own strategy, is a, it's the idea of a democratic revolution in the sense of taking state power and making changes from government with the support of the social movements that they control or that they work with. And in that sense, it's not that different from Frente Amplio. The, the main difference, and this is, it's an occasion for a lot of infighting in Apruebo Dignidad, the coalition that has the Communist Party and Frente Amplio. It's that the people from the Frente Amplio are seen, not all of them are, but are seen as from the middle classes, the professional middle classes. So, one of the main differences with the Communist Party is that the Communist Party is a workers' party. Even though it has always had a middle-class professional uh, leadership or some sectors of its leadership have come from the from more professional classes, 
but it's definitely its base is grounded in the working class and the peasants. And so Frente Amplio appears to them as a rich kid's party, right? And it, it feels like something that it's not really important, but you know that politics sometimes is built on those kind of, that, that, that daily trust that you have to build with your own comrades. And so in a more deep sense, the fact that Frente Amplio is actually, I mean, probably in Boric's cabinet, you're going to find people who went to study to Oxford for their PhD in economy, who went to, stu to study to the elite universities in the States. And so in a way, Frente Amplio is going to be a renovation of the personnel of the state in Chile, which could be a good thing because they have more connections to uh, social movements. But it also means that their end game is not necessarily a democratic revolution or a social revolution in the traditional sense. It's about uh, progressive reform for, for a lot of them, which in this moment, with a, a Chilean people that it's so weak in terms of its own political organizations or a more radical perspective, it, it's a good thing. It's good news for the people of Chile to have that kind of government. But it's also a high risk if they don't fulfill those promises. If they look toward the old concertación and the center, a more centered perspective for their government. I just want to finish with this, that those new votes for the second round came from the popular movements, the feminist movement, the environmentalist activists, the indigenous communities, people who felt threatened by caste and who decided that we had to work for Boric this time. But that's not a guarantee that we are all going to support him throughout his entire government if he doesn't fulfill those promises. So that kind of brings us to the platform, I think, in a way that Boric ran on and that the left represents. And I just mentioned them, uh, climate change, the blocking mining projects, uh, furthering legislation to increase it, to address inequality that got much worse during the pandemic, to protect women, LGBTQ rights and indigenous rights. And you mentioned that, and this is very important, Pablo Abafam, that you mentioned that, you know, the CP or the Communist Party of Chile is a workers' party that seems has seen to represent working class interests. And one should say that, you know, the Chilean working class that was crushed under Pinochet was the most advanced working class, not only in Latin America, but perhaps in the world at that time. And organized and, you know, fighting for what was, you know, that you have to say that popular unity and that struggle turned into literally a workers' revolution revolutionary democratic process, the likes of which we haven't seen since then. And it really was a high point. So where does Boric stand, you know, in terms of class politics? And then, you know, that's where I want to go first with where Boric is. And then I want to talk about the impediments that he faces in being able to implement some of the platform that he represents. I would say that Apruebo Dignidad and Boric's platform It's very, it's very similar to what the Chilean people has been demanding for the past 20 years. If he fulfills those promises, if they implement those policies, or, or and try to convince the, the Congress, this is, we'll talk about this later because that's one of the impediments. If he can convince the Congress uh, that these changes are necessary, he's definitely going to 
comply, he's going to fulfill some of the aspirations of the Chilean people for the past decade or more. As you, you've said, the, a new public pension system uh, guaranteed a universal health care, a free abortion, but also a tax reform to finance all these social programs. And freeing political prisoners is also very important. We can talk about that later, too. Yeah, Those are going to be very important successes for this government if he can manage to fulfill them. And I would say that the, the difference, I mean, maybe the difference with the Communist Party and the rest of the, the radical left in Chile with Boric is that he has always been, and he and, and this is what he always said during the debates, and the, is that he wants to offer stability and, cha- and responsible changes. And that's the rhetoric of concertación. And, and so he's sort mm-hmm. of like, his admission speech on Sunday was very relevant in those terms because all kinds of gestures towards the revolt, towards the, the feminist movement and the environment, towards the popular sectors, but also a lot of very Republican, very uh, responsible <laughs> gestures to Piñera and even Cast. Uh, so when I say that Boric has always been a moderate, it's not something that he wouldn't say about himself. He's proud of that. And so in terms of class politics, he represents that, again, a professional class that is willing to be part of the government and lead the process of changes because they feel that they are sort of entitled to do that. But then again, they also think that radical positions are a threat to democracy. And this mm. is why Boric signed the agreement on November 15th. This is why Frente Amplio has supported terrible legislation against protests in the past. And so this suspicion that I have is what a lot of people have with Boric. And I mean, I think that there's an opening for change, but it depends on if Boric is looking for support in the Concertación or in the people who have been mobilizing in the past two years, at least. This is, you know, really important, Pablo, and I'm glad that you um, brought that up. And I wanted to take it, you know, next into, because first of all, you said he moderated a lot of people on the left worldwide kind of dismissed him. You said, okay, he's just going to cave. He's just going to be another sort of moderate social Democrat a la concertación. It's interesting to me that the Socialist Party, which, you know, led the concertación, instructed their own members to vote for the Christian Democratic candidate in the first round and not for Boric. Wow. Then, of course, in the second round, they joined with others to vote for Boric because the fascist threat was so imminent in that sense, and it represented by Jose Antonio Cast. But, but, but now, also, yeah, go ahead. But, but also, they the, the Socialist Party supported Boric, also because they see an opportunity there. With Cast, right. they didn't, they wouldn't have any space <laughs> in the government. But with Boric, they are already in his economic team. He's they are working with him right now. So yeah. So I guess the question is, you know, like, what are the there's a divided Congress that in the first round of the election, they elected a new Congress and a Dignidad did not, you know, win the majority there. So he's going to be facing a divided Congress, a weakened economy coming out of the or maybe not going into going into a new phase of the pandemic. And the parliament is fractured. Investors 
are freaked out, you know, and certainly don't want taxes raised and don't want meddling. And so you've got, you know, he's going to have a lot of challenges and I'd like you to sort of address it. Will he have a sort of moderating rhetoric, but really try to implement these far reaching changes? How do you, I can't ask you to look into a crystal ball and say exactly how it's going to roll out. But on the other hand, maybe you can give some indication because he's facing a hard right 45% of the population, perhaps, who became a conservative ultranationalist counterweight to the development of the left that won so much coming out of 2019. And then the Congress, which is sort of in the middle. And as you say, his own moderating personality, but commitment to really far reaching changes. And I just want to say one other thing that, you know, some of my exile friends see a repeat in motion that once he's going to be in power, you're going to see all the old dirty tricks and perhaps a new version of a coup. I I don't want to go very far. Do more than just mention that there's that fear, because I really want to talk about what possibilities exist and how the mass movement that brought Boric and others to power will continue to to hold his feet to the fire and make sure there's changes. I think that last idea is is the key here. I mean, as you were saying, a weak economy, that it's going to be even worse next year. So there's little space for big transformations. But then again, the only way that he can go ahead with his program is to do some of those changes, right? (laughs) And the risk of not doing those changes is failing hard and probably opening the way, paving the way for an even stronger hard right, for an even stronger revenge of this neo-fascist movements against the left. Mm. So we're all at risk if Boric failed. Not just his party. Not, it's not just a political thing. It's, a, it's an issue of the next 10 years or maybe more. And then there's also the, th- the question of the, the constitutional convention, the new constitution. Yeah. Is he going to be a president that works for a clear and committed implementation of the new constitution? Or is he going to be part of the the center left that uh, doesn't want big changes in the constitution either? So those are some of the issues. But then in Congress, it's very interesting because how can you explain that in the first round of the election, Gast wins, Boric is second, and, and the Congress we elect is a divided Congress with no clear majority, a lot of small groups within the Congress. And I think that one of the ways to explain it is that in some of the recent elections, as long as the constitution, the new constitution is at stake, people go and vote for that. And they try to defend the the constituent process. And when it's not at stake, people don't care that much. They see, they know that the second round with Boric they know that the election of members of the Constitutional Convention or the referendum last year are relevant in the long term. They know also that the political establishment in Chile is highly corrupt, that it's not really for the people in terms of what they, I mean, their work is for their own party. This is the, the, the general feeling in Chile, that the politi- well, this is you, you know, this happens everywhere. People think that politicians are only self-serving and all that. And so 
those obstacles for this process of change are going to be very relevant. And I think that, as I've been saying maybe too many times, if Boric decides to take side with the popular movement, those changes are going to be possible. Because if he doesn't, he's, I mean, his government's going to fail. There's not going to be space for a new, another four years of a leftist or progressive government. And so I think he's in that contradiction right now. We, we, we're going, we'll see in the next three months before he takes power, we'll see uh, what happens with that, what, what direction he takes. One of the things that, you know, of course, history doesn't repeat itself in exactly the same way ever, but there's a lot of interesting parallels to what happened during popular unity. And there, you know, Allende was forced to try to make changes without having a constitution, or let's say he was trying to effect a peaceful transition to socialism using a a constitution that protects private property, and that was a capitalist constitution. As you rightly say, you know, the outcome of that mass movement was the right to scrap the Pinochet constitution, not the Allende one. And so to rewrite a constitution that is far more democratic and inclusive, we've we've gone over this before and don't need to go into that again, but that's been an incredible radicalizing process, perhaps one that's raised shackles of fear, you know, on the right. But if if Boric as you rightly say, doesn't pay attention to uh, finding ways to overcome the impediments by relying on that same mass movement that made this moment possible, that there is a moment, an opening right now. And if, if he doesn't use that in a way to really make changes in people's actual lives, addressing those inequalities, you know, I want to ask you, is there a danger that there will be a disaffection to the right, as we've seen, you know, by the white working class, let's say, in the United States or in Britain or in France? Or, you know, is Chile different there? And then I want you to come around to before we leave the situation of human rights. There's still political prisoners. There was horrible uh, violations of, of human rights during the demonstrations. Hundreds were blinded. You know, so there's a lot of lot at stake right here. Maybe I can let you just kind of round it out. I, I totally agree that history doesn't repeat itself, and and this is very important for us for us younger generations, maybe who weren't alive during the, the popular unity and the coup in '73, because we don't have the same fears, right? I mean, the older generations, they they do. I mean, when when the revolt came. They were afraid of seeing the, a repeat of the popular unity. When the state of exception was declared and they saw military on the street, they, they were afraid of seeing again the same things that happened during the dictatorship. So, but for, for the younger generations, the fears are different. We are af- probably we are afraid of a deepening crisis, a uh, life that is becoming more and more precarious in terms of our jobs, in terms of our income in terms of our access to healthcare and education and housing. And we're also afraid of this new waves of fascism everywhere. And so I would say that our, our fears are not that the past is going to repeat, but that we're going to have something worse. <laughs> mm. But then again, that means that we are open for completely new things in, also in the positive sense. So I think that, the opportunity here is 
for this. It, it's an opportunity to make that institutional translation of the revolt of October into a good thing. There's a lot of distrust for institutional politics in Chile. Among the, the feminist movement, the environmentalist movement, of course, the indigenous indigenous people, they, they have a distrust for the Chilean state in general. And so we need to overcome that distrust in for this movement, even in the radical left, who's been a this basically a small archipelago of suspicious groups. We need to change that. We need to keep our political independence. And this is what the social movements need to do also. They don't need to join the government. They don't need to join the coalition. It's not going to be possible. There's no space for us there. Uh, we don't need to. We need to be on the streets in our own communities working for these changes to be possible. And so, and, and, and that opportunity is open right now. Huh? And then one of the things that is going to be very telling is how Boric responds to the demand to free political prisoners. We have comrades who are still in prison, who are in pre-trial detention for over a year, some of them who are convicted, some of them who are not. And then that's something that he needs to respond to. The way he responds to that, it's going to make a difference for a lot of people. So I would say that that opportunity for change is, again, is open and Yeah, that I think that's that's bottom line, that it's open. I mean, I'm I've been talking about my criticism of Boric or his coalition, but then I also feel hope in this moment, right? And we need to feel that we've been losing for so long that we need that hope right now. And the hope is not, again, the hope is not for Boric himself or his party. The hope is that the popular movement in Chile is going to be able to push this opportunity forward. It's going to be able to take this opportunity and turn it into a real change. I love that you ended on a note of hope. And I want to thank you so much, Pablo Abufon, for your analysis, for the work that you do. And uh, listeners should go out and look at uh, Jacobin America Latina at Posiciones. And of course, we're going to have you back because this story, as it unfolds, is going to captivate the world's attention. Once again, Chile will be in the forefront of pushing forward for the kinds of fight against inequality that we all so much want. And I would also say that perhaps even throughout this conversation, Pablo, I've seen some of your as you said, anti-reformist suspicion and anti-fascist relief come together to end on a note of hope. And that's where we'll end it. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Susie. I just wanted to add that we're currently working on an international campaign against uh, political prison in Chile. And so I want to take the opportunity to invite activists and intellectuals in the United States to join us. You can, they can contact me through you or through our social media And, and join us in this, this campaign. We need to make sure that one of the first decisions that Boric's government does in March is to free political prisoners. That's very important. We need to end impunity in Chile. Not again. We, we, we can't have that again. Thank you so much, Pablo Albufón. Yeah.